Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Chuck Webster is an artist who works in Bed-Stuy, Brooklyn. He grew up in Binghamton, New York, and went to Oberlin. Then he got his MFA at American University in Washington, D.C. His education history exposed him to plenty of music along his path as an artist. He was part of the Barnstormers Collective, which included Jose Parla, Rose Starr, David Ellis, and others. He's shown at venues such as Zara Smith, David Crute, Marfa Contemporary, Stephen Zavidis, Acme, Halsey McKay, and many others. He's curated shows including the recent Age of Small Things at Dodge Gallery, which included all small works by artists like Balthus, Robert Gober, Mary Howman, Tal R, Dan Walsh, John Wesley, Susan Freecon, and many others. I met up with him in his Bed-Stuy studio in the dead heat of July to sweat over talk of old music, old painters, school lessons, and much, much more. Here's Chuck and myself in conversation. What is it like? The thing makes you feel like you're more more professional yeah. like I mean, it makes me me feel like I'm doing something better right. so then so I, then therefore I will talk better yeah you have to step your game up <laughs> if you come in with exactly. like crappy clip on mics you'll be like yeah, yeah but no this is dumb I'm, no, just, I'm, is... I'm not gonna bring out my you know high level discourse so uh, how's your hot summer so far it's good it's good I've been I just had a drawing show which is up until the end of this week the 29th at David Crute Projects mm-hmm. and so that went up I think a m- two, two months ago, so since then I've been back working on bigger paintings. These are big. These are real big. They're 80 by 100 inches. On wood? On wood, yeah. They're, That's a commitment. Yeah. I like working on wood because I don't like, I like, don't, I don't like to have pressure or, or give when I paint. Like yeah. Like it to be on it. And it sort of it seems like more like an object. I mean, and these paintings are, are kind of a different, a different leap for me because they're going they're reaching back towards forms and sort of images that I've used over the years in my paintings, these um, croquet mallet and these mallet forms mm-hmm. and sort of, and they, I kind of use them in a, in a way um, as an everyman character or something, but I've, I've been using them a lot and, and I sort of, I meld them with a kind of, um, an awareness of scale or these sort of arc, this a lot of the paintings I did the year before and the year were about sort of a devotional sense of ar- a devotional architecture in terms of using the Rothko Chapel and using French churches and looking at them and then understanding the space in terms of scale in terms of basically you when you walk into a church you become I guess one with God and your scale your moral scale and your sense of personal spiritual engagements changes and so I'm trying to think about do the way I would do that and, and uh, to do that inside the paintings basically placing yourself maybe inside the paintings as you were in as you'd be in the Sagra Familia in Barcelona for yeah. example and so um, like a lot of these related to stained glass windows and then I, I was then I was using these started to have these forms that I was using, these croquet mallets and these octagons and other things come into the paintings as a kind of character um, yeah. or a kind of, um, I don't know, I guess a, a personage or something inside the pictures. Um, and so I've been, 
working with that for the last six months, I think it's mostly in drawings, and now they've started to become big paintings. And I'm really looking at, um, I'm looking at Bruegel and Del Francesca and Corbet and Uccello and basically very grand history paintings. Very, very um, large, involved, but basically incredibly clear paintings that have a lot of action in them and using these as a kind of, I don't know, a kind of pilgrimage or something, but I'm still still thinking about it and it's really, it's kind of open and they're, they get, they're getting much more careful and much more um, even could be said to be in some ways um, depictive, mm -hmm. not a, a set, like a setup, a pro an abstract proposition. I mean, getting, I got a lot of work back because I left my main gallery in March and was looking at a lot of the paintings from the early aughts and I would basically, in those paintings, I would have a sort of a set proposition of forms that I would be using. I would be, get incredibly obsessive about that, like using only one kind of pigment and then painting over and over and over and over until, until you'd see some kind of collapse or the actual touching of the paint of the panel would uh, create a new condition where I could get something from the painting and it would that would um, and the painting would kind of collapse around that new condition a, a kind of new form and so the painting had the painting had a kind of personage itself like it had an object quality and these um, larger pictures I'm trying to return somewhat to that object quality because they're much slower they're very they're very thin and they're sanded a lot and there's a lot of there's basically there's a lot of freedom and there's but there's a still a lot of order and discipline and clarity in the the way the like the compositions and the and the sort of I'm trying to get a basically a difference between a a come up combination of of a, of a a narrative composition or and a something like a a very clear abstract uh, and and technical um, proposition it's like Philip Guston said that Montaigne was able to sustain the highest condition of making over years. Mm -hmm. That like there's a, where he says there's 20 crucial minutes in the in the making of each of my paintings, and he says Montaigne is able to do that, maintain that for a really long time. Mm -hmm. And so I'm I'm thinking about those issues about how to, I guess, sublimate the sort of high, intense, crucial moments of, of picture making in, in a longer process. Yeah. Well, it's uh, really interesting the, some of the influence that you have in your work, like talking about Uccello, and you know, like, a, you know, classical painters. Yeah. And then I know that kind of contemporary life is a big part of the way you see the world too, you know, yeah. with music and with um, what you've done in the past with like yeah. sort of working out in the public realm. Yeah. Can you talk about your history in that? In terms of, like, mural painting? That sort yeah. Of thing? Like, yeah, well, I mean, I like the idea of, of it being, um, of the activity being, being, being open and being a, and having it be a, a method of communication. And mm -hmm. I, I used to work a lot of the, in a group called Barnstormers, and we would go down to North Carolina and make these make these paintings on barns out in a small town, and people would come by and like it or not like it, and bring us food, and 
and it was basically a very much about um, finding that kind of focus and where you're, you're being involved in it. I mean, a basic level is basically you have a 15 foot by 12 foot panel mm -hmm. that you don't have to store. That's one of the greatest things about mural painting yeah. is that if you have complete control, and that, that's what they, they would basically give it to you. Like, yeah, you're the painters, you do the thing. There was no, um, no negotiation or commission yeah. or anything like that. So right. it, was, it was basically like getting a huge panel. And, like, and I loved the, the, like the kind of atmosphere it would create, it would, like the conditions outside of it, outside of the actual painting. Like it, was, it would be raining and then these, these guys were hunting um, doves in the field across from us. And, mm -hmm shooting buckshot and like the buckshot would come over our heads and stuff and it was just <laughs> a, like a really intense kind of feeling and then in the way that you'd you know you'd if you're looking at a Goya painting of kids on a on a flying carpet you're kind of seeing the same you're you're, act, you're in the same place like mm -hmm. it was you know at, at two in the morning making a print off of a barn with a rolling pin and um it's very, it's really like you really, I was really sort of searching for that a real, like you're really working and like doing a lot of, a lot of carrying. Yeah. <laughs> doing the, when you do murals, there's a lot of, um, a lot of extra work. And I like, I really loved the engagement with, with every day, with like, with working people, people who paint houses and yeah. I like painting houses. And I think that that is a, um, I guess a kind of, way to, for the artist to remember what they do is a is physical and it's yeah. you know it's based on material and based on like touch and getting up in the morning and getting to work and that yeah. sort of thing like I love I love just like the way that they would talk about what you did like it was like they would give really funny funny answers about yeah. how so and I like the you know you put a smile on people's faces yeah and working the public I I from the experience that I've had, which has been fairly recent, mm -hmm. as opposed to earlier in my career, where it was just me in the studio all the time, you know, working out in the public gave me a totally different perspective on yeah. how people interact and feel about your work as an artist. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's a whole different... It's a whole different thing. thing. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, and people will tell you these interesting things and they'll talk to you and then it, it becomes, a, the, the actual activity becomes this way of being with other people. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because sometimes the art is used as a as like a panacea for anxiety or a, mm -hmm. a way in which you you deal with things and like no nobody else can understand what I do. It's that sort of like that mentality. But when yeah. you when you're out working and you sort of sacrifice a bit of whatever and then you have then you have conditions that are created that that, that make it easy to you know, that that they're they're more open, I think. It's really interesting. Like you, you see a lot of ama funny, amazing things. Like I was painting it at the beach one time, and these two kids came up, and at the end of the day, and they, I was like, had this big panel, and I was like, do you want to draw on it? Like you go ahead, draw, you know. Mm -hmm. And it was just fun. Like you just had having conversations and talking, and you feel, in some ways, you feel more open to the other person or the other the the other out things outside of yourself when yeah. you're working yeah and it's funny too because as an artist your whole sort of goal is to communicate with people pictorially yeah. Yeah. right you're making images yeah. that are supposed to communicate but so often yeah that 
the role of that thing that you're creating and the image you're creating is seen within the context of art that it's a, a language that only certain people right. know about. Yeah. So when you're all of a sudden out in the public and you're talking to people on the street who may not care or have an art historical background or right. whatever, you get a complete different sense of communication, which yeah. I think we find is nice because oh, it's very nice. We end up sitting in our studios all the time by ourselves. Yeah. And we never, you know, it's like when I used to play music, you're out yeah. playing music in front of people. Right. You, you get an immediate talk to someone. Yeah, you get an immediate response back. Right. Like you can even feel, even if yeah. you don't talk to people after the show, you feel it. Yeah. Whereas an opening is not like that at all. I don't no, think. It's, it's so just different. It's so much like thing. yeah, it's an orchestrated thing, and you're also like you feel things coming at you and the paintings are there too yeah. and so it's a weird confluence Where I, recently I went to see a show at uh, the 92nd Street Y and uh-huh. it was uh, Steve Earle and Sean Colvin and they just did an album together and, but they were interviewed by a guy from Rolling Stone I can't remember his name but he um, they had a wide ranging interview of their their inspirations and how they worked together and how they heard of each other and what and there were questions from the audience and then they played so they yeah. played four songs, then there's a question and answer, then they played. So it was, it was incredible because it was not about basically the person comes on stage, they play the music, and then they may like rant a little bit or talk. But it wasn't about seeing them on a, seeing them on one level, as opposed to seeing um, just them as a delivery for the music. Like the music is there. The music is sort of eternal and it it runs over everything and. So they 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 were singing. They're playing. They played Ruby Ruby Tuesday. They mm-hmm. did a, they did a cover song, and then they did one of their originals, and then they just talked about everything. So it was it was interesting being the there's the thing you make, which is larger than you, and then the um, you, and you maybe maybe a delivery for that. So, but I even you saw them on two levels. You saw the person and the, and the, and the the creation at the same time. Like there's a basically a person here I'm drawing a little diagram of like a, a person and then the creation mm-hmm. goes through them but then you saw the person as an independent thing right it was kind of about I don't know about the idea of personhood versus um, the creation mm-hmm. as a separate thing yeah it is it's such it was a... really interesting and then that happens sometimes when you're painting outside because you have this you have this um, I guess this intensity but then you're all you're doing is standing in someone's driveway. You're not. You're not <laughs> right. there, there are real world things which yeah. may intrude, and that's why I mean I learned how to paint by being a landscape painter. Mm-hmm. I was a teacher, was a landscape painter, we, and we go out and paint, and it sort of turns into a big fun expedition. Yeah, as well as being a um, as being a, a, a method of painting. Right, the process yeah. is yeah. part of the yeah. The product in a way like, exactly you know. yeah because you can do funny things like you'll find sand on the beach or something mm-hmm. i mean what i usually do is I, I i like to grab things from things that i see and then put them in paintings yeah i, I basically started doing that 25 years ago in school and kind of do the same thing i'll see something and then i'll i'll put it in a painting mm-hmm. i mean it, like these a lot of these paintings were I means things I would see on my travels, like I saw a lot of French churches and then many drawings in the stack of drawings in front of you were based on those. Mm-hmm. And then I would take things, like I think there's, my God, these mics are incredible. Yeah, they pick up. They pick up everything. <laughs> it's cool. As well as the 
What is it called? The, what's it called? What is this called? The, the Peapod? The Peapop? The Peapop. <laughs> um, but you can sort of tell that there's... Yeah. I think you can see in that one. There's, there's things that I, like, I would see in these French churches that I would... That you could tell that, like, the... That these, in some ways, a lot of devotional architecture and art and things that tell the story of... Um, like Giotto's, you know, the Arena Chapel and mm-hmm. Tribute by Nino Masaccio and those things, they, they're very clear things. They tell a story and they may tell it strictly within the confines of making a picture. Yeah. So between the sort of iconography of the church or of, of that sort of spiritual venue and talking about stained glass or things like I mean, did you grow up? in a spiritual realm? No, not at all. I mean, the, the, the church is it's strictly really about space. And mm-hmm. It's not, there's no, I, like, I guess the iconography is, is very much not, nothing to do with any sort of, any sort of religion. It's more to do with, um, I guess, a sense of uh, yourself in the world and a sense of psychological expansion. I didn't, and, it some ways relates to one's room growing up because you you feel at home in that air, in that room and mm-hmm. when I walked into the Rothko Chapel a few years ago and started making work based on that the octagon shape you see in some of those is mm-hmm. is the idea of one's it relates I think to one's idea of psychological expansion within a certain space and how that expansion is is strange within the world like the whole experience of working there was was really intense. Yeah. But I could tell a little, a little story they had. When I walked into the chapel, it was a something. Something happened within this, my head because I'd been a fan of Rothko since I was a kid, and um, just seeing that, and then actually having like, read his read most of his autobiography, and that sent I know, something about it. Something about the architecture and the paintings in the same place. They it was really affecting. So I started drawing and filled up a whole sketchbook and then there was a couple like a man and a woman on a bench and the man was kind of writing and the woman was meditating so I drew their I just drew their picture because it was kind of evocative and then Mm -hmm. I filled up the whole sketchbook and got really excited and was you know like the artists get the feeling you're you know you're really doing it you're just yeah you're on the in the zone and that's sort of like it's where your energy is directed inside or right to the activity but there's there there's the space between thinking and doing is very slow. It's very, very short, mm-hmm. rather. And so I went out, and I was going to go, going to go, draw out on the plant, out on the lawn there. And I saw the two people on a bench, and I was, I thought I'd go. I thought for a second, oh, maybe I'll go show them the drawings, just to see what, just to like, in a way, connect with somebody. Yeah. And I went over there and did that, and the woman remarked. That she should have wanted to have the drawing, <laughs> and I was like, I wasn't going to do that, and and then she told me that I wasn't a very good businessman, which was odd. <laughs> and she, then, she wanted to make a purchase. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. yes. I mean, I wasn't really, but I was. I wasn't. I was so in, and that's and that in some ways shows like oh god, like they don't, they don't have any idea of, of the artists of, of of what I was dealing doing there. Mm-hmm. You know, that it was like this. It was it was a different sort of thing, and then the man, he was sort of, he was um, she, like she showed him the drawing, and then he asked me, 
he looked up at me and because like in the Rothko Chapel there are all these devotional books mm-hmm. written on the side and I I went and got some of them just thumbed through them as I was drawing and wrote down some weird strange Bibles Bible mm-hmm. verses from a page and he recognized them and then asked me if I'd considered having a relationship with Jesus Christ <laughs> you can see that coming <laughs> yeah totally, totally. <laughs> like a complete and then I was at that point I was sort of losing the idea of being within myself yeah. I was sort of like it was starting to grow to like the relationship was you know it's sort of where you feel self-conscious and don't feel as though you're because I was losing my mojo yeah. <laughs> it's, just, yeah. it's like the oh, wait, when I'm putting it so I was like okay I'm not gonna I'll um, I'll go leave, I'll leave now and then she said oh it's a blessing you showed us the drawing and she was a southern lady and mm-hmm. so, so it's a blessing and so I went over to the corner Boy, there's a, there's a long, long um, pool where um, the broken obelisk is mm-hmm. by um, Barnett Newman. And I went over to the corner there and started drawing. And I, the first drawing I made was one that said blessing backwards. Uh-huh. And um, because it was like this idea of like, it wasn't really a blessing, but she, oh, she said it was a blessing. But I, I wrote blessing backwards in order to, for some reason, I was still interested in that, and that's became the title of my next show. Mm-hmm. Of the the subsequent show was "Blessing," written backwards. backwards yeah. yeah, and so I don't know. I mean, now now I'm coming to these paintings, which have a could be said a kind of a scene, like where there's th- actors within a scene, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm wondering how to to square that, I guess, with other things I've made over the past fifteen years, and. I'm just going with it. I mean, it's. Does all that swirl around while you're making? It, oh yeah, or is sure. It kind of oh yeah, everything. Or everything goes through while I'm making. Like I wonder. I mean, I'm thinking a lot about this particular Bruegel painting, the Suicide of Saul, mm-hmm. which there is um, one thing going on. The subject of the painting, where the main character is committing suicide because he realizes his end is near, and there's thousands of things happening in, in the rest of the painting. I mean, the, my pictures have nothing to do with that, but the idea of, of there's, there's an area where things are happening and then the whole picture is swirled around that. It happens mm-hmm. a lot in Bruegel paintings, like in particular um, The Fall of Icarus, where the Icarus is falling into the water at like the bottom right of the painting and there's this dude all walking, the, all these all this other yeah, stuff, yeah. which is much more interesting, like pictorially, and then there's this little thing, oh, like that's the, as opposed to like something like Prometheus Bound by Rubens, where it's like the whole picture is, is the thing, that, is yeah. that thing, yeah. And yeah. so, um, like these newer paintings, that, especially this big brown one, that's it's got a lot of elements of, of a large, like trying to, to engage a large sense of history. Maybe, I try and, maybe I'm trying to do everything at once, but I'm mm-hmm. sort of reflecting on the different, the different um, uh, protagonist characters I've used in, in different scenes. And, mm-hmm these sort of mallet characters. And, and then I've been using, um, looking at Courbet and like thinking about Albert Bierstadt. So I'll think about these paintings all the time when I'm working. I'll think about how big to make things and how small. And and then in this picture, I've, in the one that's more stained glass, I think a lot about like scale in terms of human body scale. Like there's that sort of red and yellow thing sticking out. I think I could, that could be a foot. So yeah. I'm pushing pushing the space back. I mean, I think, well, basically a lot about, like, edges and color, like, and, and trying to actually, while I'm doing it, the formal stuff mm-hmm. is there, but then it goes, like, your mind goes everywhere. Your mind has that sense of expansion between 
thoughts that are small and private and on you know not um, not public and and sort of ephemeral and strange and then things that are very definite like oh I should wash this brush yeah, yeah so there's like it, it your thoughts are in, in some ways infinite in some ways it's like there's a, there was a the show of June Leaf that is at the Whitney right now called uh-huh. Thought Is Infinite yeah I think that that's pretty that's a pretty interesting interesting way to explore, to think about working and she had, you can see that in her work there's so many weird things that happen right. and there's, then there's a portrait yeah which is just you know they're I saw and I saw um, the fil- a film about Robert Frank her husband yesterday and it, and it, in some ways you see the same things you see these like this very incredibly disciplined um, technique and and how and understanding a process and then with a, a very very completely open mind and heart and how how he is able to get things done and and also to just to be with other people and meet people mm-hmm. like I remember they're like they they're making a film and they call a guy over to the car and there's one of the guys who dresses up this like the Statue of Liberty for Liberty Tax yeah. Service yeah. <laughs> he, says, he comes over and he calls him over to the car and says oh we're making a film and he's like oh do you, you want to be in it and it's like yeah yeah what do you have to do and he just and then the film is right there mm-hmm. like that's or rather he's there he's in the film right there like hey how are you what's your name and he's like nice to see you good day and that's the film like that's <laughs> that's the that's the content of the film it's a it was and then then they're all very non-linear and very um, but very directly directly emotional so I love that idea of, of a very strict completely strict discipline and then making something that's infinite I mean in terms of any other pos- any other um measurement yeah yeah well with all the um you know those imagining all those thoughts swirling around in your head yeah. while you're working on yeah. these like the tower of Babel, just yeah. like spinning you know yeah and then all this sort of there's a real physicality to your work yeah and there's a history of all these marks yeah it's and it feels i don't i've never watched you paint but it feels you know physical you yeah know, like athletic in a way because it it's their big work moving and then there's Stirring. It's basically with a jar, and then you're stirring, and you go. And then in this one, there's a lot of scraping. Yeah. So there's a, in some of the big paintings, I've, I use a grinder to grind mm-hmm. the paint off. Yeah. Um, and that's just sort of a, it's very actiony and sort of like surfing. It's like use it's like you doing mural mural painting in a way because there's a lot of uh, um, it's very, very whole armed, mm-hmm. you know, and um, it's exhausting. Yeah, I can imagine. So, are there moments of kind of turning off the bigger picture? Oh, and just, yeah, and yeah. Just working through, yeah, only like, like reacting unconsciously or formally mm-hmm. to the, the stuff. Oh, definitely. And yeah. then there's like a time of reflection. And yeah. at the same time, with all that going on, I know you're a huge music fan. Yeah. So, are you? Is it silent in here? When no, you're I usually listen to music. Yeah. Uh, sometimes I let it go silent, and yeah. I, go, I go through um, periods with certain records. Right. For some reason, lately it's been. Um, the Chronic by Dr. Dre, once a day, <laughs> which has been really good. And then I, I've, re, I've been, I've been wanting to actually use CDs, so I've you know got these CDs all laid out, and mm-hmm. now I can play them all the way through, which is really fun. Yeah. And it's not a, 
it's not like this instant thing where you get a you know I really want to listen to this 1975 single by Squirrel Bait and it's instant and it's instant you can and then do you can it. play radio based on that yes, exactly. shuffle radio based shuffle on radio that. is yeah, yeah I like the idea of it being more more direct and but then I get lazy you know yeah I went through a long period with, like with podcasts with Mark Maron I listened to him a lot yeah and listened to um, things on YouTube I mm-hmm. tend to like or listen to The Sopranos a lot because. Um, that's it's, it's like the the, the you, you kind of you can kind of imagine what's happening and then the, and it's really funny yeah like the the dialogue is incredible so I li- I'll it'll go back and forth but I have tended to to want like relating into mural painting I have tended to want to go into a world because sometimes like especially in the drawings they're it's very complicated so I'll sit at the drawing desk and I'll put on I've been watching this show Brotherhood on H on a, Showtime about mm-hmm. like these Irish gangsters in Providence, and it's it's kind of fun to do that. But then I then I go through a period of not wanting to be to have a scenario going on. Right. It's I find that to little be a little different than when you're painting and you're listening to a just a music that's a, one kind of flow. And when you have a TV show on, it feels different. Like it feels like there's a another kind of um, there's like a scenario going on. Yeah. And um. So then I'll go through periods with with certain records. I'll go through them and listen to them all day. Oh, like, yeah, loop yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. Loop, yeah. I've done that a couple of times, and a lot of a lot of older guided by voices stuff. I've been listening to him to them a lot, and and they were um, a prolific. Big, yes, a big and a big influence. I just saw them. They just played again. Oh really? At They're South still Street, at South Street Seaport. Yeah, he got an, he's got a new band together. Robert Pollard. Yeah, right? Pollard has a new. He got a new a new group. That guy, he's he's, pretty, he's very prolific. Pretty sharp. He's good. He he's teaches, really good. doesn't he teach like high school English or? He used to teach high school math. High school math. Yeah, fourth grade. Well, fourth grade math, and then he quit. Mm-hmm. And everybody at the at the place was like, "Why did you quit?" And he showed them a hundred thousand dollar <laughs> check from Matador Records to finish. I mean, this is like twenty in nineteen ninety four. Right. And so, so yeah, Matador, he's like, "Look Matador at this. Probably this, is, not, this is better." Yeah. 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 And yeah. rock and roll. Rock and roll, man. And then, and so he's, you know, he's incredibly and weirdly prolific. And he does things which have, the, again, a, a sense of sort of pop discipline. Mm-hmm. And he's always trying to do his new music and he does collages and stuff. And so. A true artist. A true artist, yeah. he is. Yeah. See, I think I just figured, in my mind, I pegged him as an English teacher because he's so poetic with his mm-hmm. lyrics, which are sometimes nonsensical, but just yeah. brilliant. You know? Brilliant. I think he. He's really aware in a sort of a Wallace Stevens sort of way of of scale, mm-hmm. and um, he has. I think he has notebooks where he just copies down hundreds of nonsensical words, and he's. A, I think he has a certain awareness of things. Like when he he's able to put a very mundane situation into a narrative that seems like a Brothers Grimm tale or a a painting by the British painter John Martin, you know mm-hmm. him, he's yeah, like, yeah. makes these huge, like these, you know, the idea of being this, a turner, something very, right. very eventful. Like there's a song, I mean, I could go on about this for hours, but like there's a song <laughs> called <laughs> Don't Stop Now, where he talks, where he's, he talks about a guy like six peck ring round his neck, mm-hmm. cock of the cock block, of the block. <laughs> yeah, don't yeah. stop now. And so, and so it seems very anthemic, but it's really about a turkey, a local rooster that had a six pack ring around his right. neck. Yeah. Yeah. There's, so there's, he gets the, he finds these, um, these very strange, like vampire on Titus, mm-hmm. which sounds again, 
like it could be a you know a, like a story by Bram Stoker is actually <laughs> Titus is the street that he lives on <laughs> and he calls himself a vampire so yeah he's he's amazing who well who's our our Robert Pollard or Steve Malcolmus is of today <laughs> oh you know is, are there great lyricists isn't it funny how I mean, the, the medium like changes I mean, there's still singer-songwriters. There's still that stuff happening, yeah. but not in the same way, I think. I don't think... I don't really... I don't keep up as much as I should. Like, I remember us going... Like, I used to read The Village Voice every week about what was shows were coming yeah. up. And then I got it a couple of days, a couple of weeks ago, and it's, it's terrible now. Like, a lot, of the, a lot of the good writers have left. Yeah. But I looked through the bands, and I'm like, I don't know any of these bands. I know. It's, it's hard to keep up. It's hard to kids. keep up. got to keep up with the kids. <laughs> Yeah, it was you, Sasha Fred Jones used to write for The Voice, right? Sasha Fred Jones and... Who was in a band called Uwe. Do you remember Uwe? No, I don't know Uwe. Uwe was... Um, they were kind of tortoise-y. Oh, okay. It was kind of like... You know, they did some... They did a, uh, a track for the Microstoria remix, but they did a bunch of um, instrumental stuff, oh, okay. like multi-instrumental oh, okay. um, instrumentation. Yeah. Good stuff. Yeah. Oh, cool. Because I, I... I mean, I went through a period... I've like, listened to that, that song, Jed... That, that, that twenty minute long song by Tortoise. Oh, DJ. Yeah, DJ. I call it DJ. 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 That actually makes sense. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't. Oh, it's a great track. Yeah, it's a That's track. a millions now living is one of my favorite. Yeah, records. yeah. And I went, I went to Oberlin, so there was, I was exposed to some of that stuff pretty early in the nineties. Wait, he went. Uh, John McIntyre went there for yes, a little, right? He went there, but then for, he dropped out. Oh, he did. I think he didn't. That's finish. what a lot of Oberlin people do is they'll drop out. Yeah, <laughs> but um, he was no, encumbered by the. By the, the, by the system, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the academia. The academia, I mean, it's probably true. Yeah. I mean, but I listen to a lot of, you know, I'll, listen, I'll go through periods with, with, with Urge Overkill. I'll listen to those uh, records. Wow, I haven't thought of those guys in yeah. a while. Yeah, there's, like, there's one song. Like, I was thinking about these paintings, actually, this morning, and there was, they're, like, these very historical, huge stories, but they're not, but they're not yet, either. And I don't have like I don't have a narrative to hang them on, like the Bible narrative or mm-hmm. the suicide of Saul or the Tower of Babel. And they they have this one song on one of their records called Hen Ho, the greatest story ever told. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's basically just this rivalry between Jake um, Jacob Blade and Wade, and someone named Wade uh-huh. who was um, who they were born and then they they fell up they fell into different crowds and. Wade um, eventually they met up again and fought and Wade lay dead mm-hmm. but the, it's the name is Henho which is very sort of like goofy and yeah. strange but by the way by the music they may, they give it this they give it this um, aura of invincibility and, and largesse that's that's doesn't isn't replaced by anything so yeah. I guess the same thing happens in in painting yeah yeah although they're the Urge guys were pretty crisp. I think yeah. I saw a couple. I only saw a couple of songs at mm. the end of a set. I think of theirs. Mm. I think in Chicago. Okay. But they were good live. They're good live. Like they're tight. Yeah, they're very tight. And then that was an era of a lot of indie rock that was pretty loose. Yeah. They came in with crisp. They had very melodies, smooth. You know, like yeah. and the riffs are very like. They're very like clean. Yeah. Like the Strokes, like yeah. they have that amazing kind yeah. of tightness, but it's it's more ground, more grungy, more Chicago. Yeah, 
We were like, I remember listening to a lot of those sort of repetitive bands like June of 44. I st- oh, I'd yeah. go through those records and slint. Those are the guys we yeah. used to play with when I was in a band with oh, wow. guys like June of 44 and uh, the Rachel. Well, we didn't play with the Rachels, but right. our we had a cello in our band, so we got pegged with some oh, like, like Godspeed with, You Black Emperor. Yeah, we played with them, yeah. Papa M, um, like uh, Bundy Brown, like Ariel that. M. Oh, I don't know those. Um, but yeah, a bunch of bands like that. You know, I have to, um, if they have to um, June of 44. Hit, hit me with that. Yeah. <laughs> Send me a link. Wait, where did you grow up? I'm, I grew up in, in Binghamton, New York, so there wasn't really a like a music scene there. And then you went to school. I went to, I went to Oberlin, so there was, and I did college radio. Uh-huh. So we got, I got to go see, we get, we get free tickets and stuff, mm-hmm. so, and then the the new records would be out. So we got to go see Nirvana in ninety ninety one, and with Urge Overkill opening for them. Whoa! And they were just amazing. They mm-hmm. were just in matching matching priest outfits with little Urge medallions, <laughs> and then they came out with Ticket to L A. And it's mm-hmm. like this, again, this really rocking song that is very, very sort of a, has that tightness. And they were, and we saw like bands like the Meat Puppets and. Mm-hmm. The Melvins, who are get, uh, like another band that has this sort of aura of weirdness and like they do all these ridiculous things. Like I remember one time they they um, drew, what did they do? Oh, they dressed their bass player up in like a security guard uniform, uh-huh. and they said, "Oh, our bass player is sick, and um, could you could anybody play bass like in the audience?" And then they just. Like this guy raises his hand, who nobody knows from Adam. He comes up and he plays all the songs. That's <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty good. The whole show. The whole it's show. Crazy they, man. This, guy yeah, this guy's incredible. Wow, good job. Songs, yeah, man. this guy Steve, who's in the, you know, and so they, <laughs> but really are the like Buzz and Dale are just like incredibly tight, respected, craft, you know, incredible musicians. Yeah. And so I find that to be really great. Did you ever see the Minutemen? Oh, I wish. No, I saw the Firehose a number yeah. of times. Um, I actually saw them when they played their live show. Oh, they, they, did a, they did a live record uh-huh. from the Palomino in L.A. I saw that show, which was amazing. That's cool. But no, I've, I didn't really come to the Minutemen for a long time. For a long time. Yeah. Um, until like the 2012, I think, and, and I immediately got all the records. And yeah. I've seen the movie about them. A few I haven't times. seen it. Uh, we Jam Econo. It's a, amazing. Oh yeah, I've heard about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't. I kind I guess I came to them a bit late, but I yeah. still. I think I probably well I don't even know when they stopped but there's some bands like that I mean just thinking of that era of bands it yeah. brings up certain people that I wish I would have seen live yeah. I know that well I have a, a title from the Minutemen called I Can Make Seconds Feel Hours mm-hmm. which is a, a line from one of the songs on Double Nickels on the time great record great yeah. record and I thought it's incredible because they can, they really do that. They're, they, they don't, the songs are very short, but they sort of envelope you in the song. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, I can make seconds feel hours. He even, he, he gets to the point quicker. Like he, he's loses, leaves out a word mm-hmm. grammatically, but it, it makes the point that the actual structure of what he's doing is altered to make the point of what he's saying. Yeah, it's so like Basquiat would cross out words right. to make people look harder. Yeah, it's sort of the same thing. It's like um, you have to figure out what yeah, it is. Yeah, figure out what yeah. it is. Like it's on, it's on you. Like it, and it, I love that the fact that it makes the audience sort of work a little bit. Mm-hmm. Like it, it, it allows for an engagement that gives the audience 
a role or it lets them be a person yeah. rather than being like a like a receptacle for, right. for junk, you know. Dictated to. Dictated to, yeah. Well, I mean, Basquiat was, he was an incredibly sophisticated artist, but then he had, he was able to filter everything through through the his brain and it would all go on to the picture. Like the radiant, the, like childlike, but very, very aware. It's funny because I hadn't thought doing. of that, but it makes yeah. sense that it resonates with today's viewing public too because there's kind of like an information system in those paintings. Yeah. There's all this text. There's this yeah. kind of like navigating you do around it to figure yeah. it out. You know, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. It's, it makes sense today. Yeah, paintings. it does. They, they do make sense today and they're like, they're much more interesting to look at than a lot of like whatever de-skilled painting the, today. Like it's, that seems zombie formalism, I guess is the one. Yeah. Somebody's, Find that phrase. Crabstraction. Crabstraction. That's a good one. <laughs> a good one. Yeah. <laughs> a little more harsh. Yeah, yeah it's a little, a little harder. More or, or like, um, I forget that a friend of mine curated a coin something. I forget what it was called, like slacker minimalism. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think he he was able to do that because he would he would, I think he was able to invest emotionally in each stroke of paint. Because there, there was an idea that he's thinking very hard, like the weight of his thoughts are within each, like circle and dot and X, and and then he would just the way he and he would, that was the way he would sort of relate to people. So I relate to that a lot in terms of like you see a painting and think about somebody funny, and then you put the him put them in the painting in yeah. some some way. Um, but what were we talking about about the about the abstraction? Mu- that was before that about I mean, music, yeah, about. Um, Oh, about the idea of the min- of the Minutemen, because mm-hmm. they would they would have these songs that were they were I mean they relate a lot to Guided by Voices because you there's Guided by Voices songs which are 28 seconds long and you you feel put in a world in that 28 seconds they're yeah. like in a way like haikus or Wallace Stevens or very simple things that are that are clean and they take you to another place for a minute. Yeah, but really infectious. Yeah, not even melodies. Some of them are just weird sounding, but yeah. they just get under your skin. Like you yeah. just hear it in your head over and over. Yeah. Like the kicker of elves thing. Yeah, like I can't. Once you say yeah. "Guided by Voices," that that melody kicks into my head. Oh, it does. <laughs> it just doesn't stop. Kicker of elves. Yeah, over and over. And Sutter found the thieves of souls and parasites, the bugs of gold, surtled and spoiled and sold. So it's it's. Like they don't really mean anything, but then they 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 do. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. I love the the unity of all those things. And the occasional British accent <laughs> for no reason. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, lovely. <laughs> Spot on that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They, it is odd. They they do have no. There's no reason like, yeah. for it, but he does it anyway. It works. <laughs> it works. It totally does. That's really funny. Yeah, yeah that, and I, I, Pavement is one of the best live shows I think. Oh, you have. I never saw. Never saw them. I've, I saw them a few times. Yeah. And um, my best pavement story is um, Steve was hanging out. I forget who opened. I went to see him. This is in Pittsburgh way back. And uh, he's walking around in front of the stage before the show. And me and my friends are like, whoa, he's just there. So he comes up and he puts his arm around me. He's he's like, hey, you guys drinking? And we're like, no, we're good. And he's like, well, what's your story? And we, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. I think it was something sure. like, you know, what's your story? And my friend's like, oh, we're in a band. We're, we're from here. And he's like, oh, what's your band's name? And, yeah. and we're like, Pipe Dream. And he's like, yeah, yeah I like the name. And then he just walked away. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. But he, but he didn't, like, he wanted to drink with you or something? Like, yeah, I think he was pretty, he was. He was pretty hammered, yeah. Yeah, he yeah. was 
is yeah, pretty heavy into it. So I, I can't imagine he went on stage and played a whole set and it was brilliant. I yeah. mean, I think some people can just handle that. Well, that's what Bob does. I mean, Bob is he'll do a drink a lot and then you know then he then he go out and play basketball for four hours. Yeah. Actually, when I saw them, he's really it looked like he was really in shape. I, I don't know how people do it. I yeah. mean, you see the videos of like Zeppelin Live or yeah. like bands like that, and you yeah. know they're just gone, but how yeah. do they remember? I think they do other drugs. Just counteract it. <laughs> just counteract just it. balance it out. Coke, there. I guess. I yeah. have no idea. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, Jimmy Page is doing this crazy solo. Yeah. But his, you see his face. It's glazed <laughs> over. He's like off in orbit, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's just not an automatic thing. I don't know how Bob like, remembers all those lyrics. Yeah. I mean, I remember meeting him several times, and he was just always kind of like this out of it. But then, like, he'd go on stage and just do high kicks all day, and he would always like get in fights. He, it was really funny. Like, that's how he kept in shape. It's how he kept in shape. It's like being on stage, and then yeah, they would have a whole rider of like five cases of beer, <laughs> <laughs> and not you know I don't drink, and it's sort of like I don't. It's funny to watch it all and not be and be amused by it. Yeah, and you can see them actually slow down a little bit. I saw just saw them just recently at South Street Seaport, and and you know they weren't it was a little bit less of it seemed a little bit less less nuts. I yeah. mean, but they're you know they're old professionals. Like, you can't keep that. You can't keep it up, up forever, right? Exactly. I, I mean, I liked watching. You know, what I remember seeing and we saw I saw Firehose in school, like, and they would it was just again. Nuts. Them and Super Chunk. And, um, nice. I never saw them live. Oh, I've seen them like four or five times. And that, that, that Mac McCon is actually a pretty, he's an art collector. Like, yeah, I, yeah, he's, 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 come over, friend, yeah. he's come over to my studio and bought stuff. He nice. has a couple of my drawings and I traded him for some CDs once. And, you know, and he, I saw him when I was 19. He's, and he still has the same energy. Yeah. Like, still jumps up and down. It still kind of looks exactly the same, too. Yeah. Bob does it the same way, like, except his hair is white. There's a secret there. Yeah. Maybe we should start doing high kicks as a warm-up in the studio. <laughs> in the studio. Energy. I know. I mean, look at David Lee Roth. He still looks great. Yeah, well, I think he's all that, those four or five years he spent as an EMT, I think that hell he had. Oh, yeah. He's tough. That are the high kicks. The high kicks, exactly. <laughs> he was amazing. Well, I mean, I, I sort of, like, I feel like in the studio I need to get, like, I'll go through periods of, like, being sort of lazy and, like, staring a lot mm-hmm. and then and then get into periods of extreme sort of discipline where I'll do a lot of, well, I'll spend like days just like sweeping and organizing and moving things around and yeah. alphabetizing books and then do a few marks on the painting. And this, I mean, this painting here is getting more and more weird. Like I'm, I brought up my, I have my Courbet book out mm-hmm. and I'm like looking at things in Courbet and I have a, like a, like a Lucas Cranach technique book and my Piero book and just thinking, looking around for clues to understanding how this painting may work. and. Like I've been thinking a bit about the work of Trenton Dole Hancock, where he's mm-hmm. able to, he has these, you know, these characters, and he creates a crazy universe around them. And the stories have some root in his life, but you don't, you're not really asking why. Yeah. So I remember things like that when I'm working on these, because I want to be able to, because again, again, his work is also has an extremely formal discipline of of how much just goes on each one and mm-hmm. and he's also a, an incredibly good printmaker as I, I make a lot of prints and yeah. I kind of um, use the prints in a way as a, um, a springboard for the discipline or the the level of, of separation I do in processes in the paintings mm-hmm. um, 
because you like when you're making a print you have to sort of you decide and then you have to decide which is a one one like I sort of it's parse it out in terms of the the sort of level of magic or level of uncertainty in each decision like if you're if you're painting with a big brush and then you put on another thing and then and then you like tear it up and then use some like some paper towel to push through it like in like I remember like a description of Hans Hoffman painting like he would be this he would be this it was this crazy intense world but then you have to like I want to be able to do, you know, to do those things more discreetly yeah like I think of Alex Katz's paintings when he would you know I know that he makes dozens of studies for those big paintings and then just does them in one day in one day like Fred Astaire just yeah. like boom and they're, they're yeah they're just it's a good beautiful. analogy I never thought of that yeah I think I saw that I read that somewhere in a review of one of yeah. his last shows like he's a he's a he's a total dancer like he's mm-hmm. like bop yeah. like and that that phrase and so I like the idea of, of that extreme discipline yeah and somehow, sometime, like in the painting, this is one of my most successful recent paintings. And I think it has several different elements of different, um, different things I'm going for, like mm-hmm. an idea of freedom in the paint, an idea of the history of the painting, where you see those, you see that sort of ghost image. Yeah. And that's like, it's one of the first more successful ones I've made with this homemade paint that I've been making. Yeah. Which has a lot of, crazy properties like and it's up to me I have a responsibility to to try to know them more like that's why I sort of organize the paints more. right um, is to try to feel more like you you know what's going on yeah like these get a handle on it get a literally. handle on it exactly. literally I know exactly <laughs> because you you have I mean it's like it's 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 different than squeezing from a tube it's yeah. a whole different ball game because there's they use they use different properties and there's certain colors which are very strange and have very different like you can kind of see some of the color in the top half of that has like this coppery yep that's a dioxazine violet which is a very magical weird color uh-huh. and um so i've been working using that color a lot and and do you find like in the mixing of it you're learning as you go along yeah these new yeah colors? yeah you sort of have to like yeah you like some have different opacities and you can get totally wild with it, and yeah. like, and I tend to do that. I'll kind of be just done with it, and, and do add whatever is at hand, and I'll find new ways of working. Mm-hmm. So I'm sort of just a baby with it. It's funny though, because if you switch your paints, whether it's the brand yeah. or the way you're mixing it, I mean, yeah. I work in acrylic. Yeah, I learned how to oil paint traditionally from a guy, you know, down the street from me who was an artist, and then, you know, I painted with acrylics for so long that I kind of forgot about, you know, I had to kind of. Yeah. reintroduce myself to all the different colors and palettes of oil painting when I started teaching, you know, yeah. and yeah, yeah, yeah. You had it's to go just back. such a different, it's a different deal. Yeah. yeah. And then nowadays there's so many synthetic is, you know, it's it is complicated. Lot, it is very complicated. I mean, I've been looking at this, this book of Lucas Cranach's um, painting technique uh-huh. and it's bizarre. Like I have like species of wood and all the different pigments he used and like they have the, all these details of how much, he spent on lead powder mm-hmm. and then just how he was it like different in different layers and how he was able to get that i mean yeah. i remember that that you know Degas and monet they'd paint like a green layer and then all these un, all this underpainting so I'm, I'm interested in that too but then like i'll just go up and start bloppily painting right <laughs> at the same time <laughs> i mean there's a i mean 
that show at Hauser and Worth of Philip Guston is an interesting analogy because he he was very I mean very classically trained mm-hmm. for years. You doing these like very very like these murals, very very smooth, very. And then he was then he just started on trying to understand the paint and the mark and thinking of it in this very metaphysical way. And it like that show is sort of all about maybe understanding the paint itself, right? As a as a as a thing. Yeah. I'm sort of writing a little. Zine mm-hmm. <laughs> on that Remember show, yeah, yeah. a little book, yeah, about that show. Just trying to think, trying to understand what he did and understand a bit about how he was related to those paintings. They were they weren't really paintings; they were kind of investigations and their arguments. And he wasn't trying to depict something. He was basically going up there and saying, "What is this thing I'm doing?" Yeah. Like, and it's funny because when you're in, I, well, let's talk about that for a second. Yeah. You went to Oberlin. That's yeah. a music school, right? Yeah. Yeah, they have a separate music conservatory and a college, which is a liberal arts college. So they have traditional art program too. Yeah, they had a they had a very very traditional. It wasn't really, it didn't really have as much emphasis on like you go out a studio practice and like you wouldn't go out and paint like in landscape painting. And they didn't actually you didn't really learn about structure of pictures as much and and go through the idea of looking at modernist space and studying Hoffman and. It was not the studio school type of um, teaching, and so that we, so there's a lot more like openness for people to like have their own content, and and a lot of um, at that point identity politics was rearing its ugly head in the yeah. academia. So there's a lot of that in the art world, in the art dep- department, and um, and so there was different um, different ways. So there, I, I managed to like you know be there and do my thing but I didn't really like I didn't I went to a Chautauqua school of art the year after I graduated from Oberlin and that mm-hmm. was it, I understood more about what being an artist was about like there wasn't as much of a community in terms of uh, the artists and it wasn't really focused on on making pictures and, and understanding that sort of thing yeah one of the biggest mistakes I ever made was throwing out my CD cases because I was moving at one point and I needed to Oh, you downside. It was a yeah. terrible thing to do because I, li- I loved having that sort of archive. Yeah, the cover art, like the cover art and the jackets and the sort of like, it's not even a ritual, but like opening it up and putting it in, which is which is even not as good as res records. You yeah, know, that sort of ritual. But I I'm going to alphabetize them and get back into more of a, you know, more of a, a, a way of looking at it where you feel as you're you're sort of prepared to listen to something you're like oh this is great I'm going to take this out and listen to it yeah and you say pay more attention to it's a, I guess it's a way of like being more self-aware and paying more attention to what you're doing um, yeah well yeah. in distance too it's funny because back then CDs seemed just like this really inferior thing to records yeah and now yeah. we've gotten so pa- far past CDs that yeah. you actually miss that pulling yeah. that paper out and looking yeah. at I remember when I was young you know, cassettes were so amazing. Yeah. Like folding those out, you know? Yeah. And, you and then I, I would come across an eight track of my father's mm. and I thought, oh, this is so like old and <laughs> now if I see an eight track, it's like seeing a unicorn. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, used, I had an eight track player and that was a weird thing is like would switch tracks. Yeah. And they were like sort of, there was four songs or four or three, two on each, on each like program. There's yeah. four programs. Yeah, I don't know how it is. Maybe, like we were saying earlier, maybe I'm just getting old and I'm not keeping up with it. Yeah. But it feels like there's less gigs than there used to be. I remember when I was in school, 
mm. bands would come through all the time and yeah. play. And now, I don't know if it's just... I think that in New York, a lot of the places where you'd see bands like that are gone. Yeah. Like Brownies. Yep. Um, Wetlands. Yeah, there weren't even that many. Yeah, there weren't even that many. There was Brownies, Wetlands, there was um, Tramps. Yeah, Tramps. I saw Guided by Voices there like more than a few times. And mm-hmm. I remember I saw this band, this guy, the Reverend Horton Heat. Like, I remember he was, him. He was, he would, it was funny because he was kind of this like, you know, this, the bit of slick back hair bass. I saw him once in college, in grad school in D.C. at the 930 Club, mm-hmm. and then again at Tramps a few years later. It was like the same show. <laughs> same exact show. It's almost yeah. the same exact, same jokes, same yeah. everything. And it, it was, was like, act. oh, that was boring. I was yeah. like, come on, all right. Yeah. There was some of that 50s. Yeah, Brian like, Setzer and that. like the... Or even the makeup. Like bands like that yeah. had a kind of mod... Feel, or, yeah. you know, like like the slick back hair, the slick back hair, and the and the, the the bowling shirts yeah. and stuff, and the jumping on the bass, and mm-hmm. and he had a kind of sort of a like they try to punkify himself, right? Like I'm overland, like other bands would come, like um, uh, Fishbone came, which was which oh, was yeah, kind they're... of fun, Truth and Soul, like that old, and Sonic Youth and the Pixies and. Mm-hmm. I used to go see shows in Binghamton, where I'm from, in in the like the the kind of uh, like a student union place, and yeah. it was like so open. It's a little, it's a big big room, and we'd saw, you know, I saw Jerome Cocone in there, which was mm-hmm. he just walked in with an amplifier and started playing. It's amazing. It was amazing. There Rick, were those venues, Remember yeah, like. Uh, like the FOE place or the the yeah. VFWs, like places yeah, exactly. Like, like in DC, there would be the. I saw a show in the basement of a church. Like yeah. there was a church on 16th Street in DC, and I saw, I saw girls versus girls against boys there. Yeah, it was incredible. We played a show in a VFW, <laughs> in Penn State with uh, Trans Am, which was wow, pretty great. That's, I saw Trans Am like in an abandoned building that is now a condo in Williamsburg. Yeah, the building like on Kent and Second, like the, mm-hmm. the the really long building. I saw yeah, them yeah, in that band, in that building. I saw Tramps at Brownies too. It was very small, like very like the, the places that are that like I guess that are now this new generation. There are places like Secret Project Robot and yeah that are gone. And then there's one called Shea Stadium. Shea Stadium, yeah. I haven't really. I haven't That's really right been. over by my studio. There's places that are um, that are coming up that yeah. are, that I need to like go out and be in. Right. <laughs> yeah. And because it's it's there's still experimental stuff going on, which I think is very encouraging. Yeah. Well, some of that experimental too moved into electronic stuff, so that in jazz, is a, yeah, inherently like a different kind of venue. Yeah. A lot of times, you it's know, bigger, right, and they're larger. Yeah. Or they can just be more. Like I, I would go over in Bushwick. You know, mm-hmm. there's a couple. They'll just rent a space. Yeah. And then have people come, and it's you know the kind of electronic stuff that's fringe dance, like you could dance to it, but yeah. it's also a little more right. Kind of like pushing the envelope, but you know that stuff exists. I remember that one of the greatest shows I saw in D.C. was, it was oh no, in, oh this is two different stories. In Binghamton, I saw the what's the band with three drummers? That's um, it's a Japanese band. Uh, the Boredoms? Yes. I saw yeah. the Boredoms in, in, in Binghamton. It was just bonkers. Yeah, they're good. Yeah, they were incredible. The guy would, he was, a, a, I is his name? Took, yeah. Took a, I, he was yeah. incredible. Just like, like I didn't even know what I was seeing. It was just, I remember him going like, <gasps> like he was like, he had the mic in his mouth and he was jumping up and down. <laughs> and then in, in D.C., like I went to grad school in D.C. And the, and the great thing about that place is that 
there was three or four places that always had amazing bands. Mm-hmm. Like we, at, and in the old 930 Club. The old 930? Which was incredible. Yeah, they, incredible. Like there was, I saw Jesus Lizard there mm-hmm. and, um, and then one of the greatest lineups. Like they were the, actually it was interesting, they had a, a lineup, it was No Means No, Seven Year Bitch and The Boredoms played mm-hmm. together. And that's a really weird lineup. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's just strange. And, but they was like, they all get together and play with each other. And I remember seeing the cramps at, at, at uh, oh, the Black Hat. That's mm-hmm. another place in DC, it was the Black Hat and the 930 Club. And there's a place called DC Space mm-hmm. that, um, that was a, like a classic place. I think I saw what I see, oh, Super Chunk, the poster children. I mean, me and my, me and a friend would go from grad school every, like we'd go pretty often. And, it was good because it was like we were there to see the music and we would go and it's okay I'll see you after the show and we'd, like, we'd walk we yeah. wouldn't worry about like like meeting up and talking right because it's it was the most it. annoying thing about any music venue is talking to someone right you just want to go see the music I just want to see the music like yeah. I remember just recently going to see Superchunk at a place called Baby's Alright which is in Williamsburg. It's a really good place. That's my son played his first show there. Oh, <laughs> the guy Zach Waldman who owns it. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He was he was in. I used to go see um, Guided by Voices shows with him, mm-hmm. like in the nineties. Like we, it was part of this like club called Postal Blowfish. It was like a listserv, and you'd like all this gossip and the sets and like all the comments and stuff. It was amazing. Yeah, but yeah, he has this. It's a great place. Yeah, I cool. saw Lonnie Holly play there. A little while back, who's one of these guys who you know he makes music and he and he makes great art. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. There um, used to be a great uh, record store in DC where they did in-store performances. Oh, I small. know that place. And we played there. I can't remember what it was called, but it was really food for thought. Maybe yeah, that sounds familiar. Oh no, no, that was like a that was a place where there was it was a coffee shop. No, this place was like a two-tiered record store. Like there was step, like you go in, and then you go up another level, and there was like an area where they would have bands play. But it was a cool spot to see. I think that might have been, might have been a food for thought, maybe because I remember seeing. That sounds really familiar. I saw I saw a Circus Lupus at mm-hmm. that at that store, in '93, and it was just because the guy I, I used to go through times of playing those records over and over. Yeah. Like Super Genius and Solid Brass, like those were great records. They were just the way that, like, I loved how the music, like in, in that band, especially, that's a good example of the, like, the music would go one way, and then the lyrics were like, the way he sang was very disjointed and weird. Yeah. He was like, I never felt so clean in my whole life. And then he would, like, start singing in this sort of, like, Rollicky, very scratchy, mm-hmm. harsh voice, and the music was like this sort of like, like really driving, you know. Yeah. So it was a great, like a great, a great uh, contrast. Yeah. I, lo- I love those guys. Yeah, they were so. Good. Special K, another band I saw them called mm-hmm. Special K. Like one of the greatest. This is great. I've, I haven't thought about this stuff in a while. Like, we <laughs> went to grad school in DC, and I'd play Ultimate Frisbee down by the, by the mall yeah. in the Ellipse. Like every Saturday, and one Saturday it was raining, and we were just like playing, and it was like this weird foreboding day. And then suddenly, like over the like the ellipse is a flat, and there's a hill where the Washington Monument is on, and on the other side there was like this big stage. I hadn't seen it before this day, but it was like a big wrought iron kind of open theater, and woods behind it, and 
for some reason I started playing, I started to hear this incredible crazy feedback and the song starting and it was Fugazi was playing a free outdoor show out there in the rain and it was like this song called Reclamation and it was like, and it was like, holy cow, like you'd hear that song and then I, so I ran across, I like left the game and ran across in my cleats to, to see the show. And yeah, it was that's like, what any, you know, anyone should do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyone would, would want to do. And, yeah. and it was amazing because it was, behind them, there was like 400 Positive Force, which was an organization in D.C. for, mm-hmm. you know, they were, they were just behind them, just rocking. Yeah. And I remember them, like I'm getting goosebumps right now, literally, you can see them. Yeah, yeah. Like listening, they played the song Instrument um, from... Oh, I need a lot to da 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 da. Right, Darner. It's like a song. I think it's called Instrument. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, those were just amazing. Yeah, they were a great live show. They were. Ser- I've seen. I was telling. I saw them like four or five times. Like, just so like that. That searching of that energy and that kind of. In some ways, it's what you get when you're out landscape painting and you're talking to someone and then they say something funny mm-hmm. and you put it in the painting like that, that they, 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 they give so much energy, energy to the crowd and then they, it sucks it back and that moment is kind of really important yeah like I remember seeing them um, in Binghamton and like they had this reputation of like hey dude like, like of scolding the crowd for being jerks yeah and it's, like it's, people are moshing and yeah stuff exactly and they, they don't like it yeah and so Ian had this thing where they like where he said he's like thanks for being really cool you know like thanks for everything and then like and then then somebody there was some sort of problem and then somebody yelled go with it like from the crowd and that became a refrain for the entire show and it was just incredible like I remember one time I was at Yado the art colony and I saw that that movie instrument for Mm -hmm. the first time and and it was just really, really powerful. So I went, I went down to the studio and listened to seven Fugazi records in succession, mm-hmm. and painted till like four in the morning, just because of like that energy you get from the music is, yeah, is is powerful. They were one of those bands too that their sound, they created so many people who wanted to sound like they were, yeah, had the elements of their sound in it forever. Mm-hmm. And we used to play with bands like that, you know. Yeah. Where, you could just hear it. They like were what's, so a, what's a good? What's an example of, of one of those bands that? Well, I mean, it's varied. Someone like Rye Coalition. Okay, I don't know. You know, that. or did you ever hear Carp? Yeah, there were like dismemberment plans. Yeah, like things yeah. like Unwound. You know, Unwound, like yeah. all those bands had that element of that kind yeah. of quiet, loud, yeah, aggressive. Yeah, you know, and and flinty like us. Yeah, and again, another band like that is Slint because they would have, they were very like repetitive and then mm-hmm. get very anthemic. I, mean, I think Slint played I think it was an All Tomorrow All Tomorrow's Parties yeah. Festival at the at Irving Plaza and they, they played kind of they played Spiderland like perfectly. Right. Yeah. Yeah, they were tight. Yeah, very tight. Like Codeine, did you ever see Codeine? I heard of them. I never saw them. I saw Steely Dan a couple years ago. And that <laughs> it's a was on sequitur. A little bit, but no, it's it's the same because what they do at their at their live shows is they'll put the record on uh-huh. on a record player and play the record during Verbatim. the show. Well, they play the record on a record player. Uh-huh. I don't know if that's not playing, but they'll they'll play the record at the they'll play lo- the whole record live at the same time. Yeah, it's and the backing track is the record. 
<laughs> they don't actually no, like no, the I monitor know. is yeah. the record or something like that. <laughs> no, they they just go and drink coffee until yeah. the show's done. No, but they'll they'll play the show live and it'll be exactly the same. Yeah. Same time, same same everything. Which is a trip. Which is impressive. Yeah, it's very impressive. Yeah. I mean, yeah, like that. That discipline is pretty amazing. I imagine Yes doing stuff like that. Too. I, saw, I saw Yes in like high fragile. school. Fragile. You could just picture yes. that being played. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, note for note. Yeah. I remember I was seeing them in high school, and there was like the big generator tour when they just started looking really dumb. Owner of a lonely heart. <laughs> yes. Oh God, that's so bad. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's seeing like that, and then you're reminded of like Genesis and and Peter Gabriel and that whole yeah. like schism of creativity and cream cheese <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like susudio that sort of thing like, yeah. like how do you yeah that, how that how, that's weird how that happened I'm really, like I think I went through the went through a couple times listening to the old Peter Gabriel records um, and King Crimson like I, I got this big King Crimson box set and I was I'll go through listen to those a couple times like and those are especially there's one called Asbury Park which mm-hmm. is a, a really long instrumental song and then like in the like the original 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 fancy one you get the whole song like on the live record album USA you don't get the whole song I love, I love that that specificity I guess that yeah. I guess that's what drives music fans you know to get the the Japanese import with the one extra song that's better than all the other songs Stone Roses I used to always get their, oh, yeah. <laughs> their Japanese imports because they we were just dying for that extra song I didn't really listen to them but in the but, waiting Oh, the waiting there's no more waiting. What's going to happen? Oh, I know. There's no more inaccessibility. Yeah. Like going back to Basquiat and they're like crossing out. Like you just go, do, 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 and you're there. Right. Like it's like, like I remember because I, I remember going to Rebel Rebel Records in 1996 or seven and buying the European single of Under the Bushes, Under the Stars that had an extra, extra disc, yeah, extra, yeah. extra disc with all these Things. And then I discovered that there was a Japanese version of that record with two other extra songs called Finks and None of Them Are Any Good and uh, Running Off for the Fun City Girls, which were, I guess they were in a, in a podcast or in some other thing described as frighteningly good. Yeah. <laughs> like, those songs were just bonkers. They're so good. And I used to get Jap- those, especially the Stone Roses ones, yeah. the Japanese import. And we had on my high school soccer team mm. a Japanese player who was a, a mm. study abroad student. Mm. And I would ask him to translate all of it. Oh, that's awesome. If only I would have learned yeah. the Japanese alphabet back then. Yeah. <laughs> it would have been really cool. That would have been kind of cool. to have up the sleeve. The, yeah, when you go to this. Like, I remember, like, all these stores have closed now. Like, other music is closed. Yeah. New York Central oh, is closed. Oh, let's talk about is, that for yeah, a second. Yeah, that's terrible. Oh, yeah. yeah so, th- this is a great transition. Yeah. I haven't even talked about that yet. But, yeah. All these, all these places are gone. They're, yeah. Like Pearl, you know, all the Pearl. things that made New York what it was. Yeah. Is it time to leave? No, I don't I don't know. Like I think I've I've Tell everyone out there it's time to leave. <laughs> go, <laughs> don't come run. here. Hey grad get, students. Yeah, the grad students go to somewhere else. Yeah, yeah stays. make some make a scene and they'll walk Yeah. Yeah. It's not what it used to be. Yeah, it's not what it used to be. <laughs> no, there's still I still love a lot of the things about the city that have nothing to do with like a kind of um you know that sort of like mom and pop, mom and pop, yeah. like the mom and pop stuff. Like it's, it's the best. Like and yeah. then like talking to someone in a cab from Nigeria, right, or or wherever, or just like that, or at a place that sells buttons. Yeah, I mean these places are leaving. Like New York Central is closing, which is I think that's more. It's nothing to do with. It's more like a family sort yeah. of like the family runs it doesn't want to run it anymore, and and the idea of these places passing into 
other hands. I mean, I was friends with Carl Plansky, who ran Williamsburg Paint for yeah. the longest time, and he, you know, he made all the paint upstate, and then had the store, and then eventually, after he passed away, it went to Golden Paints, yeah. which is again like a kind of a mom and pop place right. upstate, and that's which is a good sort of steward of that. Like, I think that these places ha they need a kind of um, that kind of caretaking in terms of to be to to succeed and be yeah. successful. And it doesn't help being outside the city because yeah, the rents and the space here. Yeah, to make but it's music venues too. Think about yeah, it. How exactly. do you have an like an indie spot to where like you know garage bands yeah. play if the rents are what they are? Yeah, I know. There's like I guess Baby's All Right. They do. They have music and they have food and they yeah. have, and they like they make their money off selling alcohol. Right. That's the most. And then they'll and they have all the other concerns like they've got to pay people and stuff. But it's mostly the rent. Yeah. And I think that like the uh, New York Central, I don't think it like the building was sold, but they could have moved. But like the Sheraton bought it, and they're all the way to Webster Hall is going to be a like a new hotel. Like it's stupid. Like, oh, you've seen it just yeah. in Brooklyn. I mean, yeah. it's changing. Like it changes fine. I mean, when I first moved to Williamsburg in the late '90s, you know, there were some areas that Amity. were a little sketch. You know yeah. what I mean? And I don't miss that aspect of it. But yeah. the thing that you miss is that it's just becoming like basically like a mall you know yeah. it's just yeah, new Whole Foods opened news. up they opened today oh god yeah Whole Foods and like Levi's yeah but and still... I don't think Whole Foods is the worst thing in the world no. but I do think the fact that creative people can't afford to live here yeah. is not a good look yeah. for the city it's not <laughs> it's like because what happens yeah it's know? the whole homogenification of American culture I mean yeah. there's still a bookstore like I still like going to the Strand and I still miss the Strand of the 90s when it was like all dank and yeah, just like there was hardly any alphabetizing of things and but then the I was like used to this one yeah because I go to the rare book room of the Strand which is more has more of these old school guys but but then I'll go a lot in Williamsburg for example to Spoon Bull in Sugartown yeah. which is run by Miles Bellamy who's the son of Dick Bellamy who ran the Green Gallery in New York and was showed De Suvero and Grosnor, and it was a legendary oh, yeah. dealer. He's like, he Leo Castelli learned from Dick Bellamy. Uh -huh. There's two new books, actually, about Dick Bellamy uh, that you can find at the, at the Spoonbill about by, by um, an art historian whose name I can't remember right now. Um, but they're incredible, like about learning about that, that guy. Like that's a guy like him and, and David McKee, who originally left, like are, mm -hmm. these, are these people who believe in their artists and and that type of I think that type of belief and that type of faith I think is is missing in the today's sort of art world I think yeah. there's some dealers that have that um, but I think that that type of like operation is is the same way like I remember going to David's Warner when it was in Soho on Green Street yeah. and it was like this little tiny place and seeing these amazing things of baseball players like by Pettibone I'm like who is this guy yeah and I didn't know that I had a black flag t-shirt from 1986 right. so like, like that's a pretty one and that was my first one of my first rock shows was black flag wow in, that's the yeah. deep end of the pool yeah <laughs> in a Masonic temple in Binghamton on the fifth floor for like five dollars awesome and then the kinks was the, thing, was the second one whoa yeah did you save the flyer no. <laughs> well, listen, thanks so much for uh, having me over. It was great chatting.